Throughout the past few months, we've been studying Proverbs 1 through 9 and learning about how to live wisely. During those weeks that we studied Proverbs, I tried to point out consistently the Bible's definition of wisdom, that wisdom has nothing to do with IQ, doesn't have anything to do with academic degrees. You can be a well-educated fool. According to the Bible, wisdom has everything to do with the skill of rightly relating to God in every single facet of life. Wisdom is the skill of rightly relating to God in every facet of life. We were told in Proverbs 1-9 through 9 that if you want to get wisdom, the beginning point is, the, the, the very beginning point of wisdom is fearing God. And that can sound a little bit strange to us today. Fear God? What does that mean? It means respecting Him supremely, recognizing that He's a threat to our existence, that our existence hang, hangs completely on Him. It refers to caring what He says about us more than we care about what anyone else thinks. We fear Him. It means caring what He says more than we care about what anyone else says. And this fear of God, this awe of God, affects every facet of human life. It affects every facet, including how you talk, how you handle money, how you choose friends, how you respond to trials. Fearing God plays a role in every facet of life. And fearing God affects your sexuality. We learned in Proverbs 1-9 through where Solomon addressed this issue of the fear of God affecting your sexuality, we, we encountered it at least five times. Right in the middle of Proverbs 1-9 through is a very powerful verse, Proverbs 5.19, where God commands married couples, be intoxicated in each other's lovemaking. That's right in the middle of Proverbs. Proverbs 5.19, be intoxicated with each other's lovemaking. The fullest description of this intoxication comes in a book known as the Song of Songs. It's a collection of a few dozen poems about the cravings for sexual love, the delights of sexual love, the struggles in sexual love, and we're going to take three weeks to study through these eight chapters. Today's the first week, Lord willing, in three weeks will be the second time that we study it. Now, you might hear that we're getting ready to study the Song of Songs, and many of you might have a knee-jerk reaction like that's, that's very negative, even, even dreadful. It could be the last thing you want to be taught about this morning, and there are several reasons for that. Maybe it's because you're just disillusioned with sexuality right now. Maybe for the last year or two or ten your marriage and your marital sexuality would be cold as ice. Or maybe it's because you've endured sexual trauma and the whole topic of sexuality is one that draws you back into some of that pain. Maybe it's because you're a single young adult and you think that a message like this one is going to stir up those longings that you're just desperately trying to suppress and keep under control. Maybe it's because your body is not what it used to be. You're dealing with maybe menopause, 
you're dealing with disability, or you're dealing with the effects of age. Maybe it's because you're widowed, and a message like this brings back very difficult memories of intimacy in days past. Maybe it's because you're burned out on porn, and you just feel listless and hopeless. Or maybe it's because you're a parent, and you really don't want your elementary-aged kids to hear this yet. You wish that children's church went up to sixth grade. (laughs) I promise you, I will be careful, and I promise you that it is best for your children to have exposure to these truths in the context of a Bible-teaching church. I just go through that list of potential dreads so that you understand that I know that I'm pastoring a congregation of people who have those sorts of reactions. I also want you to know that I've tried to prepare every word that I'm speaking this morning with pastoral sensitivity. But I do want to remind you that the Song of Songs is Scripture, and all Scripture is God-breathed, including the Song of Songs. And the Song of Songs is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, in, in living for God. This book is profitable for all of God's people. It doesn't matter what age or stage of life you're in. And I think it's really helpful to emphasize here at the outset that the guy who wrote this song is not some guy who had a great sex life and wanted everyone to know about it and envy him. It was penned by an individual with horrible sexual regrets. Solomon is the author. That is the simplest reading of the very first verse. Solomon, of course, was Israel's king from about 970 to 930 B.C., so about a thousand years before Jesus. Solomon was one of the greatest philosophical writers in human history. He was the son of David and Bathsheba, a relationship that began with intrigue. And yes... This is the very same guy who made a wreck of marriage. He notoriously had 700 wives who were all princesses and 300 concubines. This was in direct disobedience to God for Israel's kings, according to Deuteronomy 17.17. The king was not to multiply wives. Now, along with Jewish tradition... Most of church history, and especially if you want to read about this, the recent teachings of Douglas Sean O'Donnell, I believe that Solomon wrote this book repentantly at the end of his life. There's strong indication, especially in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is another book that Solomon clearly penned at the end of his life, that in his old age he repented and he returned to the fear of the Lord and he began teaching about the joys of exclusive monogamy. In our day, a guy like Solomon penning the Song of Songs would be almost like one of the world's most notorious womanizers being converted and then writing about what's wise sexually. It would be like a notorious womanizer changing 
And then writing a book that basically says, I want everyone to know that I've done it all wrong. Take my word for it. Few people have had more sexual experiences than me, and I'm telling you, you are wise if you understand sex as God designed it. It's for a man and a woman in the covenant of lifelong exclusive marriage. This book is a testimonial of a repentant man who lived every sexual fantasy you could imagine and says, let me tell you where fulfillment, joy, wisdom is found. This is the Song of Songs in front of us. I'm going to read today chapter 1 and part of chapter 2 and all of chapter 8. It's actually been several years since I've taught through this book in this much detail. I actually only ever taught through this book in this much detail about 10 years ago in our midweek Bible studies that met here in the back of the auditorium on Wednesday nights. There have been a few times I've given one message overviews of the book, and some of what I teach this morning is going to be similar to that because we're getting the the main parts of the book this morning. So like I said, today I'm going to read the beginning of the book, the end of the book, and I'm going to occasionally paraphrase the text so that we get a sense of its meaning, offering explanations as I go, and then we're going to summarize the main point and zero in on the central truth of this book. Verse 1. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. According to another passage in the Old Testament, Solomon had written 1,005 songs, and this is Solomon's Song of Songs. That means it's his chart topper. It's his greatest hit. It's his greatest of all songs. Verse 2, the first one to speak is the wife. And you might notice, if you're using the ESV, there are headings before about every poem that say she, he, or others. Interestingly, in Hebrew, the, the word you has singular and plural, masculine and feminine. So if I say, hey, you, come over here, you don't know in English whether I'm speaking to a man or a woman, whether I'm speaking to an individual or a group. But in Hebrew, you'd know all of those things from the form of the term you. And from that form, you can determine whether it's a man speaking, whether it's a woman speaking, or whether it's a group speaking to the bride, the groom, or to them both. That's why you have she he, and others. Interestingly, that also indicates that the Song of Songs is a bit like, many of you have done this in middle school or high school English, it's a bit like reader's theater, where you have one person talking, then another person talking, and then a whole chorus saying something to encourage the conversation that's going on. That's the form that this book is written in. The chorus, for what it's worth, is probably the bride's brothers who were responsible for protecting her until she was married. It's unclear, but it may be that the girl had lost her father in some way when she was a child. She speaks first in verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your lovemaking is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant, but your name is oil poured out. That's why the virgins love you. In other words, she says, you yourself are precious. Your character 
is priceless. It far exceeds the cologne you're wearing. And she says, that's why you're the heartthrob. Verse 4, take me away. Let's run. The king has brought me into his bedroom suite. Now, if you're sitting in a movie theater, and that's like the first 10 seconds, you're thinking something like, I'm not sure I sat in the right room. Because I'm not sure if I should be watching this. This has started really steamy, and I'm guessing it's going to amp up. So maybe close one eye (laughs) and keep reading. (laughs) The chorus of brothers shouts to the audience about this girl's choice of the king. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. In other words, this group of men who's responsible for giving this girl to this man is basically saying, yes, this king has strong character. Then she continues, verse 5, very provocatively. I'm very dark but lovely. Oh, daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, don't gaze at me because I'm dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My brothers were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards. But my own vineyard I've not kept. What a powerful word. She's apologizing in a teasing way for looking so unrefined sunburned because she's a poor peasant girl who works in the field so all the women in the court are going to look down at her for for her, her her looks and here for the very first time she describes herself very suggestively as a vineyard verse 7 she continues to tease tell me you whom my soul loves where you pasture your flock where do you make it lie down at noon For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flock of your companions? He replies very playfully, If you don't know, beautiful, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. She's basically saying, Where would I find you if I wanted to have a little rendezvous with you in the middle of your work day? And he says very alluringly, Beautiful, You're just going to have to track me down. And then he describes her beauty. I compare you, my love, to a mare, a female horse among Pharaoh's chariots, his stallions. He's basically saying, you are one that drives all men wild. Your cheeks are lovely, set with earrings, and your neck accented with the necklace of jewelry. Then the chorus echoes, We're going to make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. It's because they're so attractive to her husband. She begins again, verse 12. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved to me is like a sachet of myrrh that rests between my breasts. My beloved is to me like the sweetness of a cluster of henna blossoms, in the vineyards of Engedi, He's like a refreshing oasis in the desert. Verse 15, he says, Behold, you're beautiful, my love. 
You're absolutely beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Now, the point of comparison here with doves is not immediately obvious 3,000 years later. If you read commentators, they suggest four or five different possible points of comparison, but it's very clear that he's saying, I can't stop gazing at the beauty of your eyes. She responds in verse 16, Behold, you're beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pines. It appears quite strongly that they're making love outdoors in the seclusion of a forest. And she continues to speak with floral imagery. Chapter 1, she says, I'm just one rose in the lush, flowery fields of Sharon. I'm just a common lily of the valley. And he counters. He counters, no, you're like a lily among thorns. You're not a common lily of the valley. You're like a lily among brambles. That's how I view my love, my beloved one, in the, in the company of so many young women. She's utterly unique in my eyes. And then she describes him as an apple tree among the trees of the forest. So is my beloved among the young men. With great delight, I sat in his protective, comforting shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. She describes intimacy with him as a sweet experience. He brought me into the banqueting house where they can enjoy wine, and his flag over me says, Love. She's saying, I am intoxicated with and I am protected by his commitment to me. She exclaims, sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. Her longing for making love to this man she admires so thoroughly makes her feel physically sick. She says, finally, verse 6, His left hand cradles my head. His right hand embraces my body. And then she stops and looks out at everyone who's watching the scene. And she says, I command you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, do not stir up or awaken love until the time is right. That's the introduction to the book. We're going to jump over to chapter 8 now. And you're going to see, not only from our reading, but also from what I'm showing on the screen, why I'm combining the beginning and the ending of this song into one sermon. While you're turning to chapter 8, let me also just make an observation. There are so many people who grow up in church And they get into their 20s or 30s and they really struggle with sinking their roots down into biblical faith. And they often say something like, I just grew up in church and I always thought sex was bad. It always was kind of communicated to me like, no, 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 no. And I I get where where that's coming from. But that is not coming from the Bible and it's not coming from God who created sex. He created sex. It's good. 
There are many perversions of sexuality to which we must say no. But sex itself, according to the Bible, is a good gift of God. This book praises it unashamedly. Chapter 8, she says, Oh, I wish you were like my brother who nursed at my mother's breast. If I found you outside, I would kiss you and none would despise me. This sounds kind of strange in our ears because we don't live in this kind of a culture. But in ancient Israel, like in some cultures still today, Public displays of affection between married couples, romantic public displays, are not acceptable. But they would be acceptable for siblings to hold hands or put arms around each other, to greet each other with a kiss. That was acceptable for family members, but not romantically. That's what she's communicating. She says, in that case, I'd lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. And she says very suggestively, I'd give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. And then she says, verse 3, his left hand cradles my head, his right hand embraces my body, and she looks again and issues a command to everyone who's listening. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Then, moving toward conclusion, the chorus asks, Who's that coming up from the wilderness who's leaning on her beloved? These brothers are looking at their sister. And she speaks, Under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. Seems that what she's communicating is that they're in some kind of romantic family getaway location that has had some history in their family. We'd think of it almost like a historic resort or something like that. And then it seems that like right in the middle of lovemaking, the woman grabs her husband and pleads for his exclusive devotion. Verse 6 is the climactic poem. It is one of the most beautiful love poems in human history. Verses 6 and 7. Set me as a seal on your heart like a seal on your arm. She's saying, tattoo me and me alone to your soul. For love is as unrelentingly strong as death. Its jealousy is as inescapably fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. She's saying the fires of committed marital love will endure the most severe trials. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. He'd be laughed at. This is a day when almost every marriage was arranged with the price of a dowry. That last statement of verse 7 would have been one that almost no one in the original culture would have agreed with. This concept that love, true love can't be bought, married love can't be bought, totally countercultural, because in that culture, marriage was a purchase. The only way you could get married was if you had enough money for a dowry. It's a powerful poem. Verse 8 the chorus of brothers says, reflecting on the little sister whom they were responsible to protect. We have a little sister. She has no breasts, meaning she's not sexually mature. What shall we do for our sister? 
looking toward that day when she's spoken for. If she's a wall, that means if she's committed to sexual purity, we will build on her a battlement of silver. We'll decorate her with jewelry. But if she is a door, meaning she's opening and closing, she is naive and susceptible to sexual temptation, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. We will do everything in our power to keep her sexually pure. They took responsibility for the protection of their younger sister's purity. And then verse 10, she affirms her commitment to her own purity. I was a wall. My breasts were like towers. She's describing here her commitment to purity by saying that her body was like a fortress. And she says, and then I was in my husband's eyes as one who finds peace, fulfillment, joy, wholeness. Interestingly, the last word of verse 10 and the first word of verse 11 rhyme. She says, I was in his eyes as one who finds shalom. Shalomon had a vineyard. She found her husband. I can only imagine that Solomon wrote this with tears. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Hamon. He let out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. That's how he treated his property. Now she's going to describe the treatment of her property. My vineyard, my very own, it's before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand and the keepers of the fruit, 200. What she's basically saying is, my brothers who took responsibility to protect me until I got married, they're going to get the little dowry. Solomon, my husband, you're going to get me. You get the vineyard. Verse 13, he longs for the closeness of his lover. Oh, you who dwell in the gardens with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. She longs for intimacy with him. Make haste. Come quickly, my beloved. Be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the mountains of spices. And that's where the book ends. With longing. He's longing for her. She's longing for him. One Old Testament scholar, Tremper Longman, just notes, we yearn and occasionally get glimpses of a deep and satisfying relationship. But complete union, satisfying union, is reserved not for this world, but for the one to come. Marriage is just an incomplete temporary picture of something only to be found in the next world. Life will always end with longing. What we've just read the intro and conclusion of the song, is sublimely beautiful. If you say, that's not a very good poem, that reflects much more on you than it does on the poem, okay? I've tried to show, including in the screen, that what we have just read, the intro and conclusion, are deliberately mirroring each other. This kind of literary mirroring is called, technically, chiasm. And this continues throughout the entire book until you get to the dead center 
in the song, chapter 5, verse 1, where God is walking with this couple in the garden and approving of everything they're doing. The only way that we can understand the main point of this song of songs is by considering the conclusion, that beautiful love poem, and by considering the refrains. We saw two of them. There's actually one more in chapter 3. I want to start with the refrain. Go back to chapter 2, verse 7. In chapter 2, verse 7, you might remember she is lovesick, and then she says, he's embracing me, and then she looks up at the audience and says, I give you a command by the gazelles or does of the field. Do not stir up love until it pleases, until the time is right. That refrain that we read in chapter 2 and in chapter 8, it also appears in chapter 3, reveals something shocking about this book. This book seems to have, with its primary application, singles. The primary application for this book is to singles. It's for those who are not yet married, not yet committed in covenant vows. The phrase, interestingly, by the gazelles or the does of the field, is a double meaning. On the surface, the gazelles or the does of the field, they're animals that are used throughout this book to describe the beauty and power of the way God has designed creation. The bride is saying, I command you in view of the way God has created sex so powerfully and so beautifully, look at the design. It's amazing. That's one level of meaning. However, Hebrew scholars point out that the phrase, by the gazelles or the does of the field, is a perfect Hebrew rhyme with by the Lord God the Almighty. In Hebrew, the two phrases rhyme. So it's like saying, I command you, in view of the way God so powerfully and so beautifully created this world, And by God himself, I command you to keep love in the design that God created it. Keep lovemaking, keep sexual love, romantic love within the way that God designed it to be enjoyed. That's what's being said. So the repeated refrain of the book is, singles, vow that you will not awaken Romantic love, until the time is right. And if you say, when is that right time? The conclusion of the book answers that question beyond a shadow of a doubt. So jump now to chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. This is when Solomon, as an old man, is, is remembering the time when I would guess it was his first bride said, essentially, I want you, I want all of you, I want you to commit yourself to loving me and me alone. The climactic poem there at the end conveys this message. The fire of romantic love is, and you'll notice that the poem itself is a chiasm, is a mirroring with its center on the Lord. The fire of romantic love is tenaciously exclusive. It's fiercely unrelenting. It's dangerously hot, set aflame by the Lord himself. It's absolutely unquenchable by trials. 
and it is totally unbuyable. She says, in essence, to her husband, the love that we are enjoying is a strong force. And she describes its fire as potentially dangerous. Again, I can only imagine that Solomon, a thousand women too late, remembered these words of his bride's pleading with weeping. He's remembering the way God designed romance to work. And he's, I think, repenting over the fact that his life never lived up to it. I think we have enough now from the repeated refrain and the conclusion to put it together and get the main teaching of this book. Solomon wrote this book, this song, to teach singles especially, but all of us, the sublime beauty and the dangerous power of romantic love in order to caution us against any abuse of God's good gift. He wrote this powerful song to teach believers, especially singles, the sublime beauty and the dangerous power of romantic love in order to caution us against any abuse of this good gift. That abuse could come As Dwayne Garrett puts it, one Old Testament commentator, it could come in the form of premature experimentation. That is our culture. Studies are now showing that many people, before they get married, are having upwards of 30 sexual partners. Premature experimentation. It could, the abuse could come in the form of extramarital affairs, or it could come the way Solomon abused God's gift, And our culture is bent on abusing it in the form of polygamy or polyamory. Solomon's writing this book in order to warn about abuses of God's good gift. I'm just going to conclude by giving teaching that is laying foundation for what's to come in uh, in the next two two messages. Um, Just before I do that, I think I want to take just a minute and make a little explanation. I'm going to get a little technical here for about one minute. Bear with me. Look at chapter 8, verse 6. If you're using the ESV or the New American Standard, the verse says these flames of fire are the very flame of the Lord. How many of you see the word Lord at the end of that phrase? Just raise your hand. Your Bible has Lord. Okay, hands down. If you're using the King James or the NIV, your Bible is going to say something like the most vehement flame and the word Lord is not in there. How many of you have the most vehement flame? We're about half and half. Let's go to war. No, I'm I'm kidding. (laughs) The Hebrew says it's set on fire by Yah. And some translators say that 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 suffix on the word can be merely an intensifier. I would argue that I don't think Solomon is using the term Yah as a mere intensifier. 
the book is jammed with double meaning. And I would say that I agree in this case with the translations who emphasize Lord because at the very least, we have a double meaning saying this is an intensely hot flame. In fact, it's the flame of the Lord. The way God is central in the key poems of this book, I would say it's at the very least a double meaning. All right, that's the little technical aside. Now let's go back to the laying the foundation of teaching. I think it's critical that you understand that the fire of romance comes from God himself. Every one of us here must realize that the fire of romance comes from God himself. Like verse 6, which I just took some time to explain in a little bit more detail. The best picture for love's jealousy, that is, I'm yours, you're mine. The best picture for that love is a fire. And a fire is hot and all-consuming and potentially dangerous. Whenever you hear, whether it's on the radio or in your parents who've been married for 50 years, or in kids who are dating and they have no clue what they're getting into, will you be mine? I want to be yours. Wherever you hear that kind of exclusive partnering, wherever you hear that, there's jealousy present. Sometimes it's on the basis of covenant. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's insecure and it's a selfish smothering. I don't want you to hang out with anybody else. And sometimes it is the pleadings of a mature spouse who's saying, you committed yourself to me. You committed all of you to me and me alone. Give me yourself. Jealousy. That's right. Mature, holy jealousy. The other is cheap, selfish, insecure jealousy. There's bad jealousy and there's good jealousy. What's said here is that at the heart of romance is a jealous love that can be likened to a dangerous fire. And if you want to know where that fire comes from, verse 6 says, it's rooted in the nature of God. It's rooted in the heart of God. I think we just need to take a minute to to reflect on jealous love because this is huge for for worldview. Why do elementary school kids play the check yes or no game? It's because they're wired for romantic jealousy. Why do so many crime mysteries have a plot that centers on adulterous unfaithfulness that leads someone to a murderous rage. It's because human love is inherently jealous. The New York Times has a modern love column at least every week. It's disgusting to read even the summaries of it. They are trying to promote open relationships where husbands and wives don't really care if they allow each other to have other partners. And their longest articles on open relationships say that open relationships still struggle to manage jealousy. Why can't you escape that? It's because the world and romance itself is created by God. The fact that jealousy is an inherent part of romantic love 
is a strong argument for the existence of God. An evolutionary worldview cannot explain romantic jealousy well. The best they can do is they can say, well, jealousy helps raise the next generation. It just doesn't hold up. Solomon teaches that the fire of romantic jealousy comes from God himself. Solomon, like David, his father, knew the Bible very well. He especially loved the law. So let me quote from some of the law. Solomon knew the Ten Commandments. In the middle of the Ten Commandments, God says, Exodus 20, You shall not bow down or serve any other God, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. He echoes it in Exodus 34. You shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Deuteronomy 4. Still a few hundred years before Solomon, but this is 40 years after Exodus, when the people are ready to go into the promised land. Deuteronomy 4, 23 and 24. Take care. Don't forget the covenant you've made with the Lord your God. Don't make any carved image and bow down to it. The Lord's forbidden you from doing that. The Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Where do you think Solomon got the idea of Song of Songs 8 that jealous love is like a consuming fire set on fire by God himself in the Bible? And you say, a jealous God? Is that really a right view of God? Maybe that's an ancient view of God. Let me read some from the New Testament. This is Paul to the church at Corinth, chapter 10. If you're trying to live with one foot in the church and one foot in the world, you're going to provoke God to jealousy. He doesn't tolerate the cheating hearts of his people. The writer to the Hebrews said, chapter 12, offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Jesus' brother James, chapter 4, verse 5, God jealously yearns over the hearts of Christians. In other words, believer, God is jealous for you. He wants you. He wants all of you. So where does the fire of jealous love come from? It comes from God himself. When you look at romantic intimacy, you're looking at a fire a fire that is designed to reflect the very heart of God. Marital, romantic, sexual love is tenaciously exclusive. It is unquenchably hot because God's love for his people is that way. This is not a human invention. It's not just the way our culture does it. It's rooted in the very fabric of what it means to be humans created by God in God's image. So I end here with just a few questions. I've laid the foundation, the truth foundation for weeks to come, and I ask, married believer, are you reflecting God's covenant-keeping, jealous love by keeping your heart and your body for your spouse? 
single believer? Are you committed to reserving your heart and your body until, if the Lord wills, you get married? Are you willing to vow that you will not stir up these things until the time is right? Now, I step back from marriage and sexuality itself to the, to the thing it's picturing. And I ask, Christian, Christian, are you living exclusively for Jesus? Can you say with Paul, to live is Christ? Whether I go to work or whether I'm on vacation, I'm living for Christ. Whether I eat or drink or whatever I do, I do it for the Lord. Is your whole life devoted to the Lord? Are you wholly His? Tri-County, as believers, do we see in this song a picture of what God's love for us is like? Do you see that God's love for you, believer, is committed? It's warm. It's unquenchable. It's delightful. God doesn't just tolerate you. He loves you. He's committed to you. His love for you is never going to end. The best marriages are intended to picture that for every Christian. Many in here are not followers of Jesus. And I ask here at the end, Will you commit your life entirely to Jesus as your King and Savior? Do you know that he died in order to forgive rebels like you if you'd repent and turn to him? Do you know that he wants to forgive you for cheating on him? And do you know that he wants to change your heart to be one of exclusive devotion no matter what your past is? Will you commit your life to him if you're not a Christian, a follower of Jesus? Will you do it today? I urge you to commit. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I pray that you would build every one of us up in here. God, I pray that every believer in here would think rightly about marital sexuality. And I pray, God, that even underneath all of that, we would think rightly about what it means to be human, made to live for you. Whether we're married or unmarried, God, I pray that we would say to live is Christ. God, purify your people through your word this morning. For Jesus' glory and our good, I pray. Amen.